Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Deep Moment, The Way of St. James in the Words of Jesus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 12th, 2012. Two weeks ago, my wife and I finished walking the 500-mile El Camino de Santiago in northern Spain, following the footsteps of fellow Christians who've made this pilgrimage for over a thousand years. We began in the southwest corner of France, crossed the Pyrenees into Spain, then walked west for 33 days, one day for each year in the life of Christ. The Camino ends at the Cathedral of St. James, a massive edifice with a history that began in 829 A.D., and where legend says the bones of St. James are buried. And if you're fortunate, this end signals a new beginning in your life. Last year, 180,000 pilgrims from 140 countries walked the way of St. James. And while it sounds crazy to walk 500 miles, many people we met did much more. <coughs> Marie started in Le Puy, France, and so she walked 1,000 miles. Gerrit from Wales began in Geneva, which meant 1,200 miles. Helmut biked 1,800 miles from Kiel, Germany. And a couple a few days ahead of us left Holland in April and headed south. Many pilgrims had also walked the Camino more than once. Our flight attendant on the trip over had walked the Camino three times, and she warned us, it's addictive. She was right. I'd go again tomorrow. The wildflowers were gorgeous. We love leaving our normal routines at home for vigorous outdoor exercise in another culture. The architecture of the medieval churches, monasteries, and town squares made your jaw drop. But the best part about the pilgrimage were the people we met. On the plane home, we jotted down the names of about 40 people from 30 countries with whom we had walked and talked for a few kilometers or maybe even a few days. Almost every conversation with these new friends began with two questions. Where are you from? And why are you walking? Some people walk the Camino just for fun. Bjorn and his 12-year-old daughter, Nora, from Norway come to mind. <clears throat> but the majority of people we met were very clear that they were on a spiritual journey. As Americans, everyone asked us if we had seen the movie The Way. I thought that was a mediocre movie, but now I realize that for many people, it articulated the deepest longings of the human heart. Life and death, love and friendship, work and play, and the meaning of a life well-lived. Yusuru of Japan couldn't have weighed more than 90 pounds. She was easy to spot with her hot pink jacket, a floppy hat, and umbrella. 
She said that she wasn't a Christian, but she ended every day by meditating in the quiet village churches and city cathedrals. <coughs> Cho He from Korea was finishing four years of study in Finland and said that even though she wasn't religious, of course the walk is a spiritual search. Ditto for a banker from Germany and a woman recently retired from the Paris stock market. But it was our friend Jean-Claude from France who epitomized this common quest for a spiritual life that is fully and truly human. Jean-Claude worked in the French steel industry with responsibility for a $20 million budget and 40 people. But working 60 to 70 hours a week had taken its toll. At the age of 38, he was divorced, clinically depressed, and badly overweight. This is not living, he told us. So he quit his job, and in May he started walking the way of St. James in Le Puy, France. Two months and a thousand miles later, he had lost 35 pounds. We walked the last week of our Camino with Jean-Claude, and on Wednesday, June 18th, we entered the Camino of Santiago, the Cathedral of Santiago, for the daily pilgrim mass. Jean-Claude had never gone to church, nor had his parents, but that day was what another French friend called a deep moment for all of us. Jean-Claude took the Eucharist and attended the pilgrim mass the next two days. He has a new job waiting for him in September, but he says he doubts that he'll take it. His dream is to open a pilgrim hostel in France. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul says that people are inherently religious. Every person, said St. Augustine, is created by God and for God, and so we remain restless until we find our rest in Him. We try to satisfy these deepest desires of human nature with many substitutes, some good and some bad, work and wealth, family or fame, sex and power. But the French mathematician Blaise Pascal compared our insatiable desires to a God-shaped vacuum which only one thing can fill. Listen to Pascal. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? But, there was, but that there was once in us a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This we try in vain to fill with everything around us, seeking in things that are not there the help we cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. Food sustains the physical body. And so in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with bread. But while, but while food is necessary... By itself, it's not sufficient for human life to flourish. 
We in the West have plenty to eat, and even an epidemic of obesity. And yet many people remain spiritually malnourished. And so Jesus points beyond the sign of literal food to the spiritual thing signified. <clears throat> Just as he compared himself to living water that quenches our thirst in John chapter 4, he identifies himself as the one who satisfies our deepest hungers. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The ancient Hebrews ate miraculous manna from heaven in the desert, says Jesus, but they nevertheless died. Jesus, in contrast, says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This story is one of the seven I am sayings in John, all of which are intentional literary allusions to God himself, who back in Exodus chapter 3, 14, identified himself to Moses as I am. In addition to the bread of life, Jesus compares himself to light in darkness, a gate to safe pasture, a good shepherd who sacrifices himself for his sheep, the resurrection and the life who conquers death, the way, the truth, and the life, and then the true vine who fulfills Israel's ultimate destiny. <clears throat> if this story scandalizes us today, we can at least console ourselves that it did the same thing to the original audience 2,000 years ago. People grumbled about Jesus identifying himself with God. Wasn't he just the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say such things? Even some of his own disciples dismissed Jesus' claim as a hard saying. Who can accept it? They protested. And from that time on, the gospel story concludes in John 6, 66, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. <coughs> For books this week, I review a title called In Search of Japan's Hidden Christians, a story of suppression, secrecy, and survival. The author is John Duggill. Tokyo, Tuttle Publishing, 2012, 231 pages. On August the 15th, 1549, Francis Xavier, one of the founders of the Jesuits, landed on the shores of Japan and founded the first Catholic mission in that country. Protestants didn't arrive for another 300 years. For about a century, Catholic missionary efforts enjoyed various degrees of success, with as many as 300,000 converts, until 1650, when the so-called contagion of the Western faith was brutally expunged. Executions, crucifixions, sadistic tortures of all kinds, 
prohibitions against preaching, edicts, the demolition of churches, the expulsion of missionaries, and the famous fume in which people trampled an image to prove their renunciation of Christianity, all ensued for 200 years. By some estimates, the Japanese exterminations of Christians were worse than the Portuguese Inquisition. When Christianity was once again tolerated in 1854, guess what? Seven generations of so-called Kikuri Christian, or hidden Christians, were discovered. Without any clergy, Bibles, churches, or liturgy, these mainly illiterate believers had survived by going underground and practicing their faith in secret. <clears throat> The author of this book, John Dughill, has spent most of his adult life in Japan, where today he's professor of British studies. His book tells the 460-year-old story of Japan's hidden Christians. The story is both personal and historical, as Dughill visits various islands, churches, museums, and places of interest. This is a story of many layers. In the earliest days of the Catholic mission, open-minded leaders were interested in trade relations with Portugal, as they were the Christian faith. Language, culture, and customs were always a challenge. Left to their own selves, the uneducated peasants often concocted a syncretistic mishmash of an unorthodox faith, and even kept to themselves after Christianity was later tolerated. There are parallels, observes Doug Hill, when Jews were ordered to convert in Spain in 1492 or face compulsion, and Moranos continued to practice Judaism secretly. Shusaku Endu's famous novel, Silence, 1965, drew upon this history of Japan's hidden Christians. And for a biblical precedent, there's also Naaman the Syrian, who after his conversion returned home and continued to worship Yahweh, even while he bowed down in the pagan temple of Rimon. Today, there are an estimated thousand hidden Christians still living, and it is to Dugill's credit that he's given voice to their story before they are all gone. John Dugill, In Search of Japan's Hidden Christians. <coughs> For film this week, I review a title from Germany called Vision, from the year 2009. This biopic isn't a great film, but it does chronicle the life of a great person. Hildegard of Bingen, the youngest of ten children born into an aristocratic family near Mainz, Germany. In an age when life expectancy was somewhere around 40, Hildegard of Bingen lived a life that was remarkably long and incredibly productive. She lived from 1098 until 1179. At the age of 14, she entered the St. Dizibod Abbey at Dizibodenburg. Until her death, almost 70 years later, she devoted herself to the life of a Benedictine nun. 
One scholar described Hildegard as an uber-multitasking frau and an authentic polymath. The description fits. The Benedictine abbess founded two convents, conducted four preaching tours, <coughs> penned at least 400 letters to kings and peasants, wrote music in a morality play, supervised illuminated manuscripts, cared for her fellow sisters, and wrote three major theological tomes based upon her famous visions that started when she was a ch child. All this despite her pronounced feelings of self-doubt, the lack of formal education, chronic illnesses that probably included depression and migraine headaches, and the subservient roles assigned to women by a male-dominated church and culture. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Vision is in German with English subtitles. <clears throat> and for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Hildegard of Bingen, 1098-1179. It's called, O Shepherd of Souls. O Shepherd of Souls, and O First Voice, through whom all creation was summoned, now to you, to you may it give pleasure and dignity to liberate us from our miseries and languishing. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 12th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.